0: we've been waiting and waiting and waiting for it. And it finally seems like YouTube is making a move towards embracing podcasts. Podcasts can now be found in most countries as part of YouTube music, and they are currently testing out the ability to upload podcasts directly via RSS feed. Of course, that's not available to the general public just yet. They're just talking about it, but when it rolls out broadly, it is going to be absolutely huge for podcasting. Podcasting to support your business is completely different than podcasting as a business or even a hobby. Whether you need more clients, more attention, or more engagement, you need to maximize the real measurable results in your business as efficiently as possible. The Company Show will bring you the strategies, the tactics, and the expert insight to make it a whole lot easier. Here's your host, Megan Doherty. Welcome back to The Company Show. I'm your host, Megan Doherty. Something that we know from the State of Business Podcasting Report is that the vast majority of business podcasts post their episodes to YouTube, and most do live action video. This is not just because YouTube is a popular distribution channel that creators like to use and a media platform that millions of users use. It's because YouTube has a powerful and effective discovery algorithm. This is something that no audio-based platform has been able to replicate or even really come close to yet. So, if you haven't listened to last week's episode with Danielle Deser Corbett about optimizing your podcast show notes for SEO, do it now because that is information and that is content that YouTube is going to be able to use to put your podcast in front of people who are likely to care about it. They want people on the platform consuming content, and therefore, you know, consuming ads or paying for premium. And your content is part of the body that can be shown to them if it is optimized correctly. So today I want to share a little bit about what we've learned about video podcasts and YouTube usage from our annual industry research report. And then I've got a conversation I'd like to share with you that I had with Angela Hollowell, a visual storyteller and creative producer, and she's the host of the Honey and Hustle podcast, which is a video first podcast. And we're going to be talking about how using video makes an impact on her business. But first, let's dig into a little bit of data that we got from last year's report. So first of all, 96% of the podcasts that we looked at, these are the top 100 business podcasts, had YouTube channels or were part of networks that maintain them. And 69% of podcasts, and that's out of the whole 100, put their episodes on YouTube mostly via live action style videos. So many of these were in a studio with different cameras, whole body shots, jump cuts, all that good stuff. But a significant number were talking head style taken from a recording platform like Zoom or Riverside or Squadcast and lightly edited for YouTube. Now, working with video can be a large extra expense, and there's other friction, which we'll be getting to later in the conversation with Angela. But there's no reason not to use video. Many of the top podcasts using YouTube use an audiogram style or a still image with audio overlaid instead of having live action. So there's really no excuse for not having your content there at all. At this point, and especially with the recent changes, being on YouTube is the most important thing. It's more important than what format you're using. And any upload of your episodes is going to be better than no upload of your episodes. Anyone who's been doing this for a while is going to have a jump on us laggards who haven't been updating our YouTube channels with our podcast episodes consistently now that YouTube is focusing more on podcasts. And while there's nothing stopping you from using YouTube only for your podcast, 12% of the channels that we looked at in the report did that. But if you're going to be using the platform, it does make sense to add more content. And there are basically limitless options for what you can put on your YouTube channel. Some of the most popular things that we see in the data are news and commentary about what's going on in the industry, bonus or supplemental podcast content. And this can be a great way to drive your podcast listeners to your YouTube channel and grow your audience there and vice versa. You can also have more directly teaching or educational style content, repurpose your webinars and presentations. And of course, you can vlog in a casual way about what's happening in your space or live stream to connect with your community. And of course, promote your products and services and the different things that you're doing with your business. The importance of short form video like YouTube shorts and of course also Instagram reels and Facebook shorts and TikTok cannot really be overstated. They're addictive to watch and they are currently only growing in popularity. Videograms are now of a higher importance than audiograms. The short form video is really having its moment. And on YouTube, that is, you know, specifically their product shorts. 41% of the shows that we looked at last year were using them. Although four of those had only a single short. Maybe they tried the format and they didn't like it. But I think it is going to grow. And if you are creating long form episodes to put on YouTube, creating shorts to go along with them is a really, really good idea. Another thing to keep in mind is the power of YouTube channels for organizing your content and creating a convenient experience for your viewers there. Playlists are the mechanism this is done on YouTube, and they are basically categories of content that creators can make on their channel. For example, organizing all of their episodes or all of the reviews or all highlights into a single playlist that can make it easy for people to navigate and consume a whole bunch of your content one right after the other. If you don't have your content organized into playlists, then you don't have as much control over what the next thing people are going to listen to is. YouTube will choose something if you don't. 81% of the YouTube channels that we looked at in the report use this functionality and you absolutely should too. So whatever size of following you currently have or however you're using video right now, start putting content on your YouTube channel. If you ever wanna monetize there with ads or unlock certain functionality, you need to cross a certain threshold of viewing hours. So the sooner you can get started on collecting those and ranking up those numbers, the better it's gonna be. So now that YouTube is starting to add real podcast muscle to their platform as a company podcaster, you really should be taking advantage of it and making the case to other members of your team that this is an important angle to approach, even if it is just making an audiogram style version of your episode and making sure they're all up there in a playlist. Now with that, hopefully, you know, understood and agreed to by all, let's talk a little bit more about some of the other benefits that there are to video. And I don't mind saying I am, by a large margin, not the video expert. I personally don't really love being recorded, even though I can do it. And I find the extra kind of stress and friction of doing a video podcast makes me avoid working on it. And I just don't have that kind of resistance to creating audio. I find it easier and more comfortable. And I should say, you know, if you are similar to me in that respect, you don't have to do video. No one is making you. Audiogram style video, while not maybe the best performing, is better than nothing. And any podcast that you record is better than not recording a podcast because you hate being on video. But happily, there are many, many, many video experts who are extremely generous with their knowledge and their insight. One of them, Angela Hollowell, is the creator of Honey and Hustle, a video first podcast and the founder of Rootful Media, a digital media production company focused on photography, video production, and digital content creation for purpose driven visual storytelling. She also has some other exciting projects in the works and tons of great insight about how to work video into your workflow, the benefits that you can get from it, and how to make it as easy as possible, as well as her entire tech stack. I'll let you hear about all of this directly from her. Here's our conversation. Angela, thank you so much for joining me here today. Thank you so much for having me. So to kick things off, I'd just love to hear why you decided to do a video podcast instead of the more common and possibly easier
1: audio style of podcasts. So you would think audio would be easier, but at the time I, and still am, a filmmaker and was already doing video professionally for clients. And so for me, doing a video podcast was just a natural extension of the work that I was already doing. Honey and Hustle did start largely as a personal project and still is, and very much considered a labor of love. But for me, it was just a way to exercise a creative muscle. It was a way for me to stay consistent. It was a way for me to connect with people during the pandemic and make something good out of kind of a rough situation. And truly is a way for me to grow as a creator. I kind of consider YouTube kind of my play space It's where I get to experiment with new video editing techniques. It's where I've gotten to practice largely talking on cameras where I've gotten to practice interviewing and becoming a better interviewer, which is translated to me being a better interviewer when I'm creating documentary films. So for me, felt really natural. It felt right. It still feels right. And I honestly didn't put the audio on streaming until after the first season was already done. Oh, wow. So for me, it was definitely video first. And I still very much like that it is video first. And I'm excited for that to continue.
0: Very cool. So in terms of the podcasts that you consume or listen to, do you find you watch more video podcasts or do you listen to more audio podcasts?
1: I 1000% only watch video podcasts. Okay. Well, I'd say a thousand percent, maybe say like 99%, because I do have downloaded some audio podcasts while I was on some international flights, but that's the first time I've ever done it or had the urge to do it. I really am more of a visual person. The first podcast that I watched was actually a video podcast. Mm -hmm. Still to this day, that's the majority of what I watch. What is it about video that you think is so compelling? I think it's just like getting to know a person beyond their voice. You kind of see their mannerisms, you kind of see how they present themselves, how comfortable they are. You get to see when they're thinking, what their face looks like, Mm -hmm. when they're thinking, when they're amused, when they're being clever. All things that you can't kind of intuit when you're just listening to someone. And not to say the audio doesn't matter, it definitely does. You can definitely glean some things from that. And if you're solely a person that likes to gain information, absolutely, audio podcasts are the way to go. But for me, as someone who, yes, I like to gain information, but I also like to gain inspiration from what I watch. And I love the visual aspects of what's happening in video podcasts. And I think that's a very innovative space right now. So I know one of the kind of points of hesitation that a lot of
0: people have when it comes to getting into video as part of their podcasting work is the extra work, the production process, the added complexity. What's your process for going from I would like to produce this as an episode to having a finished video ready to go?
1: So I can definitely agree that video editing is a much bigger lift than audio editing because there's no like, oh, I'm just going to have a little music interlude here with nothing on the screen. That just doesn't work, right? That could Mm -hmm. work better as a transition when you're doing an audio only podcast, but that just doesn't create a good viewing experience for people. So there is a little bit more put into Well, how does the intro flow? Am I doing a voiceover on the intro? What visuals are showing? When people's name pop up on the screen, do people know who they are? Making sure we have their title. All these different elements that make the video easier to watch. And is it just a static screen? Do we do some side-by-sides? Do we do some punching shots? Mm -hmm. You know, how do we vary up some of the angles and things that we use when we're making the final product? So those are all the things that I took into consideration when I first started. Honey and Hustle has changed. From season one to season three. Now we just wrap that up. And a large part of that was I kind of set the tone that I wanted in the first two seasons. And then I found some really great video editors and I was like, you guys take it. Like, <laughs> you guys take this. And it was easier to grow, I think, that way because now I'm coming in as kind of the creative director now and just mm-hmm. really focusing on that finished product, not just like, is this audio edited perfectly? Did I do this and this and this? Like, it's really about the overall look and feel and flow of the interviews now. That's kind of what we've been prioritizing at Honey and Hustle. What's the makeup of your team look like? Right now it is myself and then I contract out for editing and then I just mm-hmm. write on an operations manager who's going to help with some outreach and things like that. I do have a team of about three or four now. I'm hoping to get back to filming in person so that may require one more person on set with me. We'll see how that goes. but. Ideally, that's what I would love to see happen.
0: Do you find like you enjoy creating the podcast more when you are able to be kind of first-faced, like with someone in a room rather than slowly? Because a conversation like this one in Riverside or something like that?
1: I would say that rapport happens a lot faster in person because like you're hanging out. Maybe I'm sitting up, or maybe, you know, I've already set up and we're just kind of like talking. Just how's your day going? How'd you have trouble finding the place? Did you eat something before you came? Do you need anything? Water, coffee, mm-hmm. anything I can get you. So report just happens a lot faster when you are filming in person. Comfort happens a lot faster when you're filming in person. Not say so that it can't happen, obviously doing it remotely, recording remotely, mm-hmm. it just takes a little bit longer for people to warm up. And that's definitely something that I've noticed when I go back and watch the interviews. I'm like, okay, this person really didn't warm up to about question one. Versus like this person I interviewed in person, you know, Question one out of the gate. They were just wide open. You know what I'm saying? So it's just like that warm up period is different. That's the only, I would say, difference.
0: I think that that's a really interesting point because that really gets into kind of how you're planning for and managing the flow of a conversation with a guest. So do you try to like design your remote recordings so that there's time to have that warm up period? Is this like a consistent, a permanent issue? Or have you found a solution for this? It takes people longer to warm up
1: thing? Maybe subconsciously, I always ask people a facts-based question first. So like, how did the business get started? Or why this business? Why this lane? Why do you do this specifically? Just because when you start off asking someone you don't know that well, who's looking at you through a computer screen, something that's maybe a little more emotionally based, they're probably not going to open up as much. They're probably not going to be as comfortable. And it's going to set the tone for the rest of the interview. And what you don't want is somebody who's uncomfortable for 30 minutes to an hour. So I think subconsciously, that's what I started doing. And then easing into more of the, what do you think? What do you feel? What do you believe questions around question three or four? And again, this is all just almost like a pacing thing too. Mm -hmm. So I'm not necessarily saying, okay, it's question three, I'm going to ask X, Y, Z. But what I'm saying is I'm understanding the pace of the interview and really timing questions according to that and really kind of guiding the conversation in a way that allows them to feel like and truly be the orchestrator of their own narrative. Oh, I like that.
0: So I'd love to hear a little bit more about how you do prep for an interview. What a wonderful goal is to let someone be the orchestrator of their narrative. When you're doing your prep work and planning to have a conversation with someone for your show, what does that look like? How do you kind of set them up for that kind of success?
1: Social media is, is a good place to start. People's websites, thankfully, a lot more people are getting on the website train nowadays. And sometimes people have had other interviews, whether that's press or written interviews. Press can be both, obviously. But yes, luckily, a lot of times there is something already out there where the people have been interviewed and they shared their thoughts on certain things. And so for me, that kind of serves as a guide. Who is this mm-hmm. person? What do they do? What are their value? What makes the way they approach business or life unique? What are some questions they've already been asked? Because I don't want them to feel like they're regurgitating answers from a previous interview. I want them to feel like this is something that is unique to them and that is unique to their story. People cannot get anywhere else. And I know that can be hard, especially if you're getting people who have been in the press a lot, like people who are launching something. How do you make an experience feel unique to them when they've already had 20 interviews previous to you? The challenge gets harder, the bigger the guest is. But I think the challenge is where the fun is. Because if it weren't challenging, we would all just do the same thing over and over again. And it would be as unique as AI is right now. And nobody wants that. So we want to add something unique to the space. We want to add something unique to the conversation. And that's always my goal when thinking about what is the story or what is the important part of the story that I want to pluck out for viewers and listeners. How does that
0: kind of work? Because I think that's an issue that comes up really frequently is, you know, you don't want your interview to sound just like every other one. And you know, you want your guests to think that this is interesting. I've never done this before. But is it just a matter of kind of researching or or is there something about your own goals and your own objective with the company that helps you get to that unique angle? How does that work just in a little more detail if you can?
1: I will always say, and this is for any video I've ever created, the best videos happen in pre-production. Ninety percent of a good interview happens in the planning phase. So I would definitely say attribute a good interview to good preparation and good research. The other half is knowing when and how to be vulnerable and how to share stories of your own that leave space for people to feel comfortable in whatever capacity sharing stories that are similar. So I'm probably not going to share that I was married and maybe at one point I wanted to kill my ex-husband. That's probably not something I'm going to share. I mean, until just now. Long <laughs> <laughs> oh, way, never been married. Never. Concerning anyone, there's a certain level of vulnerability that, and I don't want to say weaponized or used strategically, but there's a certain level of vulnerability that you have to be comfortable having if you expect to get that from your guest. And that's just the reality. Because I think there's a big difference in saying oversharing and sharing something like, yeah, I've been divorced and I know what it's like to try to run a business while you're not feeling your best and you're losing your best friend or something like that. I think that is. Something that people can relate to, even if they've never been divorced, they can understand the feeling of going through something difficult and having to work through that very publicly as a business owner or just as a person in general. And so that has been a huge learning lesson for me in terms of sharing a little bit about myself, because you also have to remember, as the host of a show, you are the only constant, right? You're going to have a different guest every episode, but you are the only constant. So the people that are listening to this also kind of want to feel like they know you as well, and they know certain parts of your story. It's good for the guests. It's good for the viewer. And I guess it's what they would call a win-win-win. I love that you said that as the host, you are the constant. I find
0: sometimes when we're producing shows, you know, if it's primarily an interview-based podcast, every now and then there'll be a solo episode and it's going to perform a little bit better than the interview ones because people are so excited to get that extra time with the host that they've started to connect with. Really interesting. So you mentioned a little while ago that Honey and Hustle really started off kind of as a passion project, but now it's transitioned into more of a business. I'd love to hear about that transition and how the podcast has been a part of it.
1: After I started putting Honey and Hustle on streaming and started doing season two and really thinking about season three, you know, as I was making that transition, I was like, okay, I'm getting a little overwhelmed with the amount of work that is required to Mm -hmm. keep up Honey and Hustle. And I feel like the show could be better and bigger if I at least could offload editing. And so I went on the journey of trying to find an editor for season three. It's a journey. It is. So. It was a crazy journey, but it was a beautiful journey. And we ended up with a really great team and a really great workflow that really allowed us to stay consistent for four months, essentially for the second half of season three, once we got in a good rhythm. So that was a huge, huge deal. But again, we're talking about an investment now, an investment of money that I had not made previously. And so I had to start thinking, okay, if I'm going to invest this much in something, what am I getting out of it? Mm -hmm. And the reason I felt like that investment for me was worth it and the continued investment in the show is worth it was because maybe Honey and Hustle as a podcast in and of itself was not making a certain amount of money each month, right? Mm -hmm. Affiliate links only take you so far. But I was noticing that when I put the link to the podcast in my email signature, people would say, oh, I saw this episode that you did with so-and-so, somebody I've worked with in the past and I really love them, trust them. So just by the power of positive association, I was getting this unofficial cosign for people who are reaching out to me for work and inquiries and things like that. So it did help the video and photography production side of my business. For me, having that was worth it. Having that network of people who I had a genuine relationship with in terms of the guests, that was worth it to me. I'm not the type of person who only interviews guests that I think I'm going to work with at some point. That's the last thing on my mind. But it's nice to have people that you know personally that can speak on your behalf, that know a little bit about you, that you know a little bit about them, and you can share opportunities with each other. And for me, ultimately, it was worth the investment to create and craft a creative community, a business community out of the show. It was worth it to have a business network that was robust that came out of the show, And it was worth it for me to have that creative outlet that really showed a proof of concept of what I was capable of as a producer and as a creative producer and as a creative director. So it served a lot of purposes. Mm -hmm. So if you are someone who maybe just has an interest, let's say you're a writer, for example, and you want to share some of your poems or some of, you know, just things that you're thinking about, maybe the incentives for you are different, right? Because you're not necessarily trying to get clients. Maybe you're trying to grow a deeper relationship with your audience that's reading your work. Whatever that incentive may be, I think it's more important to think about what does a show bring you versus how much money does it bring you? Money is just one thing. There are other payoffs to having a podcast. And that's not a sexy answer because there is a lot of time. (laughs) Oh, no, no, no. That was a
0: very sexy answer. That could have come right out of the workshop that we do on the Business Podcast Blueprints could not agree more with you on all of (laughs) it.
1: Yes. And I say it's not a sexy answer because I know people typically are like, well, you know, they see the YouTuber journey, they see the writing or author journey, and they say, well, I want that. I want to turn my passion into... Monetized, revenue generating a source of income. And it doesn't happen immediately for a plethora of reasons, mainly being that podcasting has a huge organic discovery issue. We all know this. (laughs) Don't even get me started on the organic your <laughs> show in podcasting, <laughs> which is the biggest hindrance to why podcasting does not look like YouTube, does not look like writing online, does not look like creating a book, something like that. And so it's hard to compare podcasting and getting a return on investment to YouTube or something like that. Which is why I emphasize there are other things you can get out of podcasting, and eventually, yes, you may make substantial money off of that. But the reality is there has to be something more than money driving you for podcasting. Definitely, yeah. That's a big part of the conversation that we have with new clients. We're a
0: production company and we work mainly with businesses who are podcasting for business. And the understanding has to be there. This is going to be a line item expense for a long time before it starts becoming revenue neutral or revenue positive. You got to know that going in. There's going to be tons of benefits, but they're not going to be super service level. (laughs) You're going to have to work for them a little bit. Nice to hear that reflected from another person in the industry. Do you ever find that there's any friction with guests when you invite them to the show because it's video rather than being just audio?
1: Not really. I'm pretty straight up in saying that it is a video podcast and that we'll be recording or when I was recording a person, I would say, hey, we're going to be recording here in person. I'll be giving you a lav mic, you know, it's going to clip onto your clothes or so try not to wear anything that makes too much noise. Really long dangly earrings, you know, dangly necklace, that sort of thing. I do try to prep people. And then now that I have systems in place, when I send them a reminder like, hey, you know, we're going to be recording tomorrow, it will be video and audio. Here are some things you can do with prepare in terms of lighting and audio to make sure that you show up your best on camera. I think a lot of friction comes from miscommunication or just a lack of communication. And again, that comes from not treating podcasting like a business and not understanding that your guest experience, if you're doing an interview-based podcast, is just as important as a listener experience. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Yes.
0: Yeah. yeah. So you said one of my favorite words, which is systems. Could you tell me a little
1: bit more? Like, What's your tech stack look like? Oh, yes. Love to talk about this. <laughs> Two. So when I first started as a business owner, one, I didn't know a darn thing about how to run a business. But I would see other people who I knew were like solopreneurs who didn't have a team who just felt like they had so much capacity. And I was like, how is this happening? How are they able to do all of these things? And I came across the concept of like business automation. Like, right, there are certain tasks in your business that you do repeatedly all the time. Mm -hmm. And if you're doing it repeatedly, there's a chance that you can automate those steps that instead of you spending time writing the same email 20,000 times, you can be doing something else, right? Something else that makes you money. And so I kind of applied that to podcasting. It's like, how many times do I send i remind remind you, you know, how many times do I send a follow-up email? How many times do I send the, hey, your episode is live. Here are the links to share. How much of that can I automate? So with that, I automate all my scheduling with SavvyCal. It's like Calendly on steroids. I personally like it a little bit better and have been using it. Love it. Just feel like they're just a really smart company and really makes just everything easy for me. I also use Riverside when I'm recording remotely. SavvyCal allows me to just put the link to the Riverside Studio in the Savvy Cow invite whenever they choose their recording time, which is really neat and convenient. Another thing I've been using, I guess, is Zapier. So Zapier is kind of the glue oh, yeah. that talks to each other, right? <laughs> so links things together. I just got a CRM in Missive, which allows me to kind of tag people. It's like a shared Gmail inbox type deal, but mm-hmm. allows me to like tag contacts and things like that, which makes it really easy for organization. Captivate, I host on Captivate, that is a paid hosting platform. I did start off on Anchor, which I really liked, but I really wanted more robust analytics. So Captivate mm-hmm. has been really, really awesome for that. Airtable. I use Airtable to track the progress of each season, which people I've invited, which people I've gotten to schedule, which people are in the editing phase. And my editors know, hey, this is ready to be edited. Mm-hmm. And which ones have been released. So just kind of keeping tally of that. I keep their name, name of the show, name of the episode, their email. Where they're located, any information that would be helpful for me to know about them if I wanted to reach back out to them for any reason, and just to keep track of you know who I've contacted and when. Those are the things that come top of mind. I think we're going to expand it a little bit. Hopefully, as we prepare for season four, we will be doing some blog posting. I tried with previous episodes, just hosting on a website, the podcast website. Didn't love it, so I think we're going to use medium going forward. Because that's a little bit more SEO friendly and just like an owned platform that is website agnostic. So I'll have a medium for who knows how long, but that'll be something that anybody anywhere can see those blogs at any given point in time. Super excited about that. And I think medium for us was a better choice than LinkedIn because LinkedIn is still a social media platform and it could be gone in a second. So yeah. medium feels a little more permanent somehow. Those are some of the things we've been using now. Typefully also helps, which is like a social media scheduler. So, scheduling social media videos and posts to LinkedIn and Twitter, super helpful tool, has really helped grow the YouTube channel because they allow for like a first comment or a first tweet after somebody engages with it. Just little things like that, little things that really help expand your reach and capacity can really help make podcasting less overwhelming. Oh, that's awesome. This has all
0: been very, very good and very, very exciting. Just one more question. I know you've got. Some new projects in the works, if you wouldn't mind sharing, what have you got on the docket for the next little while and how is your current show going to support you getting them up and running?
1: Yeah. So I think the first show, like I said, was really a proof of concept and that's what put me on the radar for Castos, which is a podcast hosting company. And I have a show in collaboration with Castos called Creative Architects, which will start being released this August. Really excited for that to premiere. It is a show on the creator economy featuring leaders in tech, education, and community. So super excited for you to see some of the amazing guests on that show starting in August. So stay tuned on YouTube, Castos' YouTube channel, and on streaming platforms. It'll be everywhere. That is the main thing. I think Honey and Hustle will also continue for season four. Obviously, we're going to give Castos a little space to breathe so that show can have its own space and its own life, and I can have some dedication to promoting that and being there. For that audience and growing that community as well. But I'm really excited for what is next in video podcasting, in my video podcasting journey in general. I think there's so much space for everyone. And there's so many show formats that really haven't seen past seven episodes, not calling anybody out. But <laughs> you know, I think video <laughs> podcasting takes some staying power. And so I'm excited to see how both shows can grow and Develop and kind of make their own signature in, in that space. Awesome. I'm also excited for the same and
0: for anybody listening. Links to everything mentioned will be in the show notes. Angela, thank you so much. This has been great. I really appreciate your time and your insight. Thank you so much for having me. So, of course, there can be a lot of feelings and friction around video for those who are not naturally drawn to it but the business case for it as it applies to company podcasts is getting stronger and stronger. There should probably be at least some element of video in your podcasting strategy, even if only to be able to take advantage of YouTube search discovery algorithms and the short form video that's getting more and more popular across all the different social media platforms when it comes to promotion. So thank you so much for joining me today. As always, I've been your host, Megan Doherty, and this show is produced by the team at One Stone Creative. I just want to let you know, if you haven't heard yet, the applications for this year's State of Business Podcasting Conference are open for speakers. We are looking for people to present at this year's event. And if you think that you've got an insight, an idea, a strategy, a tactic, or anything else you would like to share with the business podcasting community, go to pfbcon.com. That's pfbcon.com and click on become a speaker to share your idea with us. We're going to be making our selections over the month of August, and I would love to hear what you've got to share. Thank you everyone. And
1: see you next time.